Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day. The first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Geld, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country, sharing information on eye care and eye disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. More than 90% of Americans have pesticides or their byproducts in their bodies. Every year, U.S. farmers use about a billion pounds of chemicals on crops. But what are the risks of these chemicals to farm workers, pregnant women, or even the average U.S. citizen? Today's guest, American investigative journalist Carrie Gillum, has more than 30 years of experience covering food and agricultural policies and practices including 17 years as a senior correspondent for Reuters International News Service. Carrie's books include Whitewash and her latest book, the legal thriller titled The Monsanto Papers have helped her win many literary awards. Carrie, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. You were in our film and you're a big highlight of the film. I have to start off, why are there so many pesticides or chemicals in our food? <laughs> Isn't that a good question? Uh, I think the answer lies in a lot of companies make a lot of money uh, off of these agrochemicals. So there are literally hundreds of different fungicides, herbicides, insecticides that uh, companies that once were very involved in the industrial war machine in developing chemicals uh, for wartime now are the same companies that are pushing agrochemicals for use in food production. So you have companies like Dow Chemical and uh, DuPont, Syngenta, BASF, and Monsanto, which is now owned by Bayer, uh, that all are very involved and have been for decades. So these, these chemicals that are used in food production and are found in our food, and consequently are found in our own bodies, uh, are very highly profitable uh, business products. Let's go back to the beginning and talk about one of our heroes. I know we both... Are find Rachel Carson, one of our heroes, and the whole story with DDT, which is now banned, but I know we still find it in certain foods. Tell us the story about Rachel Carson. Yeah, so Rachel Carson is a very, was a very you know, prominent uh, and highly regarded scientist. Uh, she did a lot of her work on the natural world and, and observed very famously in her book, Silent Spring, how this pesticide named DDT which was once considered to be such a miraculous, wonderful thing, uh, how DDT was affecting uh, our environment and affecting in particular you know, birds and other uh, wildlife and, and natural living things that are very important for biodiversity. And so Silent Spring is really sort of this notion of you no longer hear birds chirping, right? Because, because birds have been um, so dramatically impacted by DDT and other pesticides. And she warned in Silent Spring and other writings that she did that if we allowed indiscriminate use of pesticides and we're not aware of 
the risks that came with the rewards that came with the benefits that we would be doing lasting damage to the environment as well as to human health. And uh, we've seen that, you know, we've seen in recent years uh, studies on North American bird population, for instance, and seeing dramatic declines in the bird population that scientists are telling us are tied in part to overuse of pesticides. We're seeing a decline in the insect population. And I just wrote a story not too long ago um, about a new study that had come out that had been tracking pregnant women uh, from the 50s. They took blood serum from pregnant women in the 50s and 60s and have followed the offspring, have followed through multi-generational analysis, uh, what has been happening to the women. Uh, first, the women who had uh, DDT in their blood back in the 60s, and then their daughters, and then their daughters, so the granddaughters, and still finding uh, harmful impacts of DDT all of these years later. And even though, as you noted, DDT has been banned um, since the 1970s, DDT is still found in our environment and sometimes still even found in our food, uh, which you know, leads many researchers, including the author of the study that I wrote about, to say, what is our DDT now? You know, this is what she told me. We, we know DDT, we thought it was so great back then. Rachel Carson warned us that it could have lasting impacts and we're seeing that it did. What are we not paying attention to now? What are we needing to understand now is carrying risk for the future? And you know, there are many, I write about glyphosate, uh, but there are many chemicals in our agriculture that we need to be paying attention to and uh, aware of the risks. So what did they find with the daughters and the offspring? What kind of health issues or uh, brain issues, IQ issues? They primarily found a risk in these granddaughters to breast cancer, um, but they also found in male offspring um, some reproductive health impacts. So, uh, you know, it was cancer and reproductive impacts related to the DDT is primarily what they found in their research. So let's, for the audience, let's explain the difference between uh, herbicide, herbicides, fungicides, pesticides. What's the difference between all the different sides so people could kind of understand that because it gets confusing. Yeah, it does. So pesticides, you can think of as sort of an umbrella term and our EPA in the United States has what is called the Office of Pesticide Programs that oversees or the OPP and they oversee pesticides. Within that category, you have insecticides, which kill bugs. You have herbicides, which kill weeds. You have fungicides, which hopefully kill diseases. Really anything that is considered a plant pest, um, even rodenticides, uh, which would be, you know, things that would kill rodents or, or animals can be considered pesticides. So anything that uh, you wanna kill, basically, you can look to a pesticide to do it. Uh, and herbicides you know, are weed killers, and this is what I write about in my most recent book. And herbicide use is really um, something that has been on the rise, particularly in farmland around the United States. And the science is, is looking deeper at herbicide impacts on human health. There's a study going on right now part of the Heartland Health Research Alliance, which is enrolling thousands of pregnant women and tracking these women and tracking their birth outcomes and measuring the amounts of herbicides in their urine 
and some early research, you know, this is this is all ongoing, but some of the early research has found that the higher the levels of these herbicides in their urine, the worse the birth outcomes for these women. With fungicides, there's a fungicide called mancozib, and you probably know about this, and they use mancozib in lab animals to create Parkinson's disease, but then they sell it in in big box stores for your backyard to kill the to kill the fungus uh, on your vegetables and on your fruit. Yeah, I mean there there's a lot of of these uh, examples about the human health harm and and the science that's established that understands a connection between these fungicides, insecticides, uh, and herbicides, and how they play out with human health. One in particular is Paraquat. Uh, you mentioned Parkinson's disease. Paraquat is, again, a weed killer. Um, but there is a lot of robust established science that shows that exposure to Paraquat can cause Parkinson's disease. And right now in the US, the, the evidence is so strong uh, with several scientists around the world backing this, that there's massive litigation that's building now. People who have developed Parkinson's who are suing or their family members are suing the Syngenta, which is one of the big companies that has long made and sold Paraquat. Uh, and that litigation is actually so building so quickly that uh, there was just recently established a, a multi-district litigation or a central court in federal court in, Cal in Illinois uh, to handle all of that litigation over this. So if you can explain what GMO crops are, because it gets confusing because you have the GMO crops and then you have the weed killers to be able to knock out, uh, knock out the weeds, but, you could, but the crops are sustained. You could explain that whole two-part uh, process. Sure. So um, this is what you know. I started covering in 1998 when I <laughs> was assigned by Reuters to the food and farming beat. Monsanto just had rolled out genetically engineered uh, crops or GMOs, genetically modified organisms, uh, in the 90s, and they were the newest and coolest thing, you know, for farmers. And the first generation of these GMOs were those that were designed to be sprayed directly with the weed killer glyphosate. Glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup, which made Monsanto famous and rich, uh, I suppose. Um, so when Monsanto called these Roundup ready crops, so a Roundup ready corn or soybeans or cotton, the farmer could plant the seed in their field and the plant would grow. And if weeds were growing in the same field, the farmer could then just go in and spray directly over his entire field. The weeds would die, but these GMO crops would not. Um, the, the way that they were different really or unique was because they were transgenic and Monsanto had been able to, uh, I mean, plant breeding is something that has gone on forever where you're cross, you know, bringing in DNA from different um, plants and things, but this was new and different. This was not from another plant. They were bringing DNA from an entirely different species and bringing that in and changing the DNA, tweaking the DNA in these crops so that they could tolerate glyphosate. And, uh, you know, it was a hit. I mean, farmers loved it. It made their weed control in their fields so much easier uh, than it had been before. And Monsanto represented glyphosate as being incredibly safe 
farmers didn't have to worry. For instance, you know, many farmers had been using paraquat to kill weeds in their fields. Of course, they couldn't use it when they were had crops growing um, because it would kill the crops. So, you know, this was safer than other herbicides, they were told, and it was very effective in killing weeds and not killing their GMO plants. Um, GMOs now, there are many different types of GMOs. Um, you know, there's a non-browning apple, you know, there are you know, potatoes that have been genetically modified, um, papayas that have been genetically modified. Um, but still today, all of these years later, uh, from the introduction in the 1990s, the main type of GMO that's planted and cultivated in the world is one that's been altered to be sprayed directly with a weed killer. And what's the difference between a GMO and hybridization? Well, again, I mean, hybridization is when you're sort of crossing different um, plants to, for specific traits, you know, and you're trying to get the best uh, and you're trying to use the best germplasm and, and get the crops that, you know, are the, the strongest or grow the best um, for certain areas. But, you know, and, and companies compete for that. I mean, you know, you want to have the best portfolio of hybrids possible. Um, but, but a GMO is different. A GMO can be a hybrid. Um, a hybrid can be a GMO, but it's taking that transgene, that gene from outside the species um, and putting that in that makes it different or unique. And of course, GMOs have generated a lot of controversy. There's been um, ever since they were rolled out, there's been concerns that maybe they, you know, increase, you know, allergenicity in the food that's then consumed by people that maybe they're not healthy for livestock. Um, there are concerns about, about the monocropping that they encourage in farming practices. Um, and there are big concerns, of course, about the residues that are left in the finished food from the weed killer that's sprayed directly on top of the finished crop. Or on the ground. Are there any benefits, real benefits to GMOs? I remember watching a little video of uh, that. He's, I guess, he's pretty famous from one of the TV shows. They call him Mr. Wonderful, having a debate with like a 16-year-old girl, and he kind of was shaming her, and she was talking about the problems with GMOs and how it's the, the dangers of it. And he was saying how it's so good. And because of GMOs, we're feeding the world and it's allowing us to do that. Is there any truth to that? Well, <laughs> there is no robust science that supports the idea that you need GMOs to feed the world. Um, there's a lot of talk. It's sort of a talking point. It's a huge talking point from the companies that are selling the seeds and the companies that are selling the chemicals, which in many cases are the same companies. Um, but no, I mean, the United Nations, you know, who study this, Food and Agriculture Organization who studied all of this, um, you don't need GMOs to feed the world. You need bountiful, healthy, nutritious crops. There's not a trait, there's not a GMO designed for yield um, necessarily. The companies have long tried to develop one uh, for yield or for drought tolerance, for instance, that sort of thing. Um, but they haven't ever really been highly successful. Um, so to answer your question initially, I mean, yes, there are benefits. If there weren't benefits, farmers wouldn't use them. They never would have gotten hooked on GMOs uh, to begin with. They did indeed make farming much easier uh, for corn, cotton, and soybean growers initially when they were rolled out. 
um, because they did help farmers fight weeds. But the, the, the problems that came with this, you know, encourage this overuse, encourage monocropping, you have residues left in the, in the, uh, in the food, which affects consumers, affects trade markets, um, causes concerns, makes weeds become even more and more and more resistant. The more weed killer you're spraying on the field, the more the weeds are becoming resistant. So then you're in this cycle and then you have to continue to use more and then you have to add different weed killers on there. Um, you know, and the impact, you know, I write all about this in my book, Whitewash, um, the effects on pollinators, the effects on the environment, the effects on soil health, um, you know, the effects on water quality. As you get into this vicious cycle of using more and more excessive amounts of weed killer because your weeds are no longer dying as easily as they once did, uh, you know, you create a real train wreck for environmental health and human health. So benefits, but also risks. And you know the balance of those has shifted pretty dramatically over the last few decades. Well, there's benefits to the farmer; it's easier for them. But what's it? What benefit is it to the person eating the food? <laughs> well, I, I don't know that there would be a benefit. I guess the the companies would say maybe you're going to get cheaper food, you know that sort of thing. Um, you sure can you sure can get a lot of food made with cheap corn syrup, right? You know. We have such an abundance of corn. Corn is one of the main genetically modified crops. Uh, we have such an abundance of corn. We have over a billion bushels of unused corn stock every year, according to our USDA, that tracks this sort of thing. A billion bushels, so we don't have anything that we can do with it. You know, we've used it for food and ethanol and livestock feed and shift some of it overseas, but we still have a billion bushels left over. So, you know, this isn't a matter of scarcity where we need these GMOs because we're running out of corn, for instance, um, or soybeans or something like that. It's just, that's just not what's really going on out there. What GMOs are about are promoting the sale of expensive patented seeds that these companies get licensed and royalties off of and spending, getting farmers to spend money on the chemicals that go along with the seeds. Why does the government subsidize corn and soy and rather than like healthy things like uh, broccoli and spinach? Yeah, I mean, that's a big problem, I think, you know, and a lot of experts will tell, tell you, and certainly I'm not an expert. I'm a journalist. I talk to experts and then share what they say with the world and I read data and reports and, um, you know, spend my time trolling through government websites and trying to learn as much as I can. But yeah, I mean, that's a major problem. We have a lot of our farm policy uh, that has been designed to support the, the farmers that are growing what the big companies want them to grow, right, which is our GMO corn and soy and that sort of thing. And of course, they are mainstays in uh, livestock feed as well as in a lot of you know, favorite consumer food products. So there is a need for that, um, but there's definitely a need we see for more support for sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, for healthier foods, for organic foods. Um, it's something that people have long been trying to change in Washington. And we're starting to see you know, little bits and pieces uh, of that playing out. We're starting to see more, more money, more subsidies, more incentives for farmers to move away from pesticides, for instance. Um, 
but you know there's a big farm lobby there's a big lobbying very rich powerful companies who spend a lot of time and money and energy in washington to make sure that the policies uh, promote their agendas before you talked about they insert genes into the genetically modified food what kind of genes where do these genes come from well, so for instance, you, you have an E. coli bacterium. Um, the, the companies are able to use their technology and their expertise and scientific research to really ply sort of, you know, the, the depths of mother nature in very unique ways and very novel ways. And so for glyphosate, um, for instance, they were able to use this bacterium that you know it, it didn't come from a plant you know it actually came from sort of this bacterial organism uh, that they were able to to splice into the plants to get this resistance to this chemical weed killer so what is bt toxin how is that different than other types of gmos well bt again was sort of a novel and, and you know really um uh, explosive uh, new technology that the companies rolled out. And it, so instead of spraying an insecticide, this is different than, than the herbicide or the glyphosate resistance. This is dealing with insects and insect pressure. Um, and they were able to develop crops uh, that could be their own insect killer, basically, could produce their own toxins uh, so that uh, these insects that would try to feed upon the plants or the roots um, would die, you know, or be repelled, but, uh, but the toxins would not last or injure people who would consume the food, people or livestock who would consume the food is what, is what the industry said. So is that mostly in corn? Is yeah, so they have been, yeah, and they have been really popular again with farmers. One of the problems is what we've seen is that again, mother nature adapts. And so as you saw weed resistance, uh, in fields where farmers were using these glyphosate tolerant crops, you've seen insect resistance develop uh, to the BT. So, you know, again, the technology may start out as, you know, just the greatest thing ever um, for farmers, or they feel that it is, but as mother nature adapts and resistance develops, then you have a problem where you have to come up with other tools and other, often other uh, chemicals to try to beat back these pests. Now we have a lot of bacteria in our gut. You know, there's a lot of bacteria in our gut. What happens to when we eat the corn that has this BT toxin in it? What happens to our microbiome? Well, and this is an emerging you know, area really of research and scientists are, are understanding and studying and writing about how these agricultural chemicals are affecting us as we consume them in our diet, as we consume them in the food that we eat, as well as the water that we drink. And what they have discovered is that the, the gut microbiome, where we have you know, lots and lots of bacteria um, that are needed for our healthy immune system and you know, all of the various bodily functions uh, that we need to be healthy people, um, that these gut bacteria can be negatively impacted um, by these chemicals coming into our body. And it's a real, you know, real concern, obviously. And that's another area where, um, where people are advising or promoting, you know, more regenerative agriculture, move away from pesticides in foods, 
uh, a reduction in these pesticide levels that we allow in our foods, that our regulators allow in our foods if possible. Well, it says that 70, the experts say 70, about 70% of our immune system comes from our gut. And these bacteria, the microbiome, I guess it's bacteria and viruses and all different types of uh, all different types of organisms that we have in our gut. So, uh, you know, they talk about the shikimate pathway. And if you could talk a little bit about what the shikimate pathway is. Yeah, this was this is sort of the mode of action or the way that glyphosate works in a plant, the way that it can kill a weed is that would it, it would affect this shikimate pathway, um, which was sort of an essential way for the plant to, you know, make amino acids and to, you know, stay alive, basically. Uh, and Monsanto always said, you know, you don't have that in pets and people, it's safe for pets and people. Um, and that has sort of been the scientific understanding until somebody said, wait a second, what about this gut microbiome and the bacteria and the, the similar pathway there? And of course, you do have a similar mode of action. They, they found that this can affect the bacteria in that way. Um, so, you know, this is something the companies have always said, it doesn't really matter about these residues in your food. It doesn't matter that you're taking this in through diet. Uh, the EPA has largely backed the companies on that and said, as long as these levels are within, you know, a, a tolerance uh, that we're going to set, um, then you don't have to worry about it. But this new science is showing that we really do have to worry about it. So what is Roundup and what is Roundup Ready? We talked about that a little bit before. Yeah, Roundup is simply a brand. Roundup is uh, glyphosate. Um, is the main ingredient, but it's a very popular brand that was introduced by Monsanto and uh, is now owned and sold by Bayer, which uh, purchased Monsanto in 2018. And what happened with Roundup, the glyphosate patent that Monsanto held since 1974 was expiring in the year 2000. And this is when Monsanto had this brilliant idea to use all of its technology and in seed and traits and uh, transgenic uh, work to introduce these crops that could be sprayed directly with Roundup glyphosate. And so they called them Roundup Ready crops. And this Roundup Ready combination uh, was what Monsanto hoped that would help it hold on to market share with its glyphosate herbicides with Roundup. And they talk about that, I talk about that in my first book, uh, talked about it with investors and had a nifty little chart where they tracked how the introduction of these Roundup Ready crops had allowed them to expand uh, the sales of Roundup uh, and, and expand their market share as well as their volume sales of Roundup. So it was quite a successful strategy. So explain what glyphosate is. And glyphosate, when they first came out, it was supposed to be for, as an antibiotic. Glyphosate was studied, glyphosate was a, a compound, a substance that had been studied um, for many, many, many decades and uh, sort of changed hands multiple times as different companies, there was a pharmaceutical company, different chemical companies looked at it uh, and tried to find something uh, useful, you know, a useful, profitable product that they could base upon glyphosate. And, you know, it finally, when it got to uh, the company that is Monsanto, and a scientist there, he discovered the herbicidal action of it. And that was what really took off. That was the winning you know, um, discovery, if you will, 
and he actually did win awards um, because it, it was shown to be so effective on a broad array of types of uh, weeds. Um, but yeah, it had many other properties too that people had looked at and examined and could you use it as an antibiotic? Did it have an antibiotic uh, function to it? Was, did it act as a chelator? You know, where it could bind heavy metals. Um, but the, the one discovery that really took off obviously was the, the herbicidal activity of glyphosate. And I believe it's registered in 130 or so countries. Are there any countries that don't allow it, that ban it? There are many countries that have said, especially in the last several years, that they want to ban it or are going to ban it or in the process, there are certain restrictions in countries. Um, but what you see is every time a, a country tries to make that move, Monsanto, now owned by Bayer, aligns with the U.S. State Department, you know, other um, active government uh, bodies in the United States to try to turn back that uh, action. So in Thailand, a couple of years ago, they said, we want to ban glyphosate. We're going to ban glyphosate and a couple other um, really bad agrochemicals where the science says these are really bad for our people. And uh, the Monsanto went to the U.S. government and said, you know, we, this is not going to happen. We've got to stop this. And we have emails, you know, correspondence. And they, the U.S. government pressured, essentially threatened Thailand to such a degree uh, that they backed off of the glyphosate ban. They went ahead and banned the other chemicals, but they did not ban glyphosate. Mexico similarly has said, we want to ban glyphosate. This is dangerous for our people. We don't want these GMO crops with their residues. We don't want glyphosate. We're going to ban it by 2024. Uh, again, we have emails um, between uh, the US and the company saying, we, you know, we got to make this stop. We've got to turn this back. And they have been pressuring Mexico um, and threatening all sorts of trade war issues and um, you know if Mexico goes ahead with its ban and there are court challenges, the companies are trying to uh, do everything they can to stop Mexico from banning it. Uh, you've also seen it in France and Germany and Italy and you know, New York City uh, just passed a ban uh, on glyphosate and other pesticides in public places. Um, Baltimore, Chicago, a lot of big cities in the US and a lot of countries around the world, again, yes, are trying to ban or restrict it um, because of the science showing the harm to, to human health as well as to the environment. But you know, when you have a very large, powerful, multi-billion dollar corporation and a whole lot of corporations uh, working with them, it's very hard to push through a ban. Well, so the next logical question is why is our government getting involved in other countries, why are we pressuring? Why are we pressuring other countries not to ban it? Yeah, you know, in Mexico, uh, the the leaders in Mexico have essentially said as much. You know, we want to protect the health of our people. Is what they've put in their documents on this. Our primary concern is the health and well-being, um, you know, of our population. Um, but the U.S. is pushing this and presenting this as you know a huge economic issue it would be a huge blow they say to American farmers um, you know who grow a lot of GMO crops uh, obviously it would be a huge blow to those companies selling glyphosate products and selling these patented GMO seeds 
Um, so there's a real economic um, element in the protection that the, the United States government is giving to these companies. So is there, a, is there an acceptable dose that the government allows uh, the amount of glyphosate in food? So those are called MRLs or the maximum residue limit or level. Um, and the government uh, in the US, just as in countries around the world, does indeed set that MRL or that tolerance level. So for instance, there's a certain tolerance for glyphosate in apples. And if the government takes a sample of an apple and finds that the residues of glyphosate, for instance, are higher than the MRL, then that is an illegally high level and one that is supposed to trigger some sort of action um, because that would be something the government would say could be dangerous, right? Could be bad. Um, and there are different levels for different foods. So there's different levels that are accepted for bread or crackers or apples or oranges or, um, so it's, again, it's a different. And the interesting thing that I, again, noted in my first book um, was that these levels have changed. So many, many years ago, uh, the level that would be considered safe in, you know, oats, for instance, um, or wheat or soy, you know, was at one level. But then when Monsanto wanted to increase use, they went back to the government and said, actually, we think the safe level or the legal level should be higher. We should be able to allow more residue in the food. And the government has done that. So over time, you've seen what is considered the legal or safe limit has been raised uh, over and over and over again. And I just noted this in, uh, you know, in honey, I've written a lot about it in honey because beekeepers of course don't use glyphosate around their beehives or they typically don't. Um, they're not feeding it to their bees or anything, but of course the bees are in the environment, uh, you know, and are taking up uh, pollen and things as they move about and freely. And so we're finding, researchers have been finding glyphosate levels in honey, um, you know, all around the world. And this has been a real concern for people, especially, you know, people who want to buy organic honey and think that they're getting honey that's free of pesticides. And, you know, it's hard to keep a bee uh, from, you know, going to fields where they're going to be exposed to, to weed killers. So, you know, in Europe where uh, Monsanto and Bayer and others are now trying to get reapproval for glyphosate, one of the things they're asking for is a new tolerance level uh, for glyphosate in honey because they know, you know, there's gonna be a lot of residues of weed killer in your honey. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, I guess, but that's a particularly, I find that just particularly interesting because and it's not just glyphosate, you know, in, in the most recent FDA report, uh, which came out in December 2020, uh, that's the most recent one. They put, they submit these reports every year where the FDA looks at, you know, thousands of food samples. And this most recent one, they said we found 212 different pesticides in the foods that we sampled, you know, and these are again, insecticides, fungicides, and, uh, and herbicides. And, you know, some of these, chlorpyrifos is one that was found right up there at the top of the list. And it's, it's a known neurotoxin. It's known to be de developmentally damaging to young children. And it's, it's so uh, dangerous. The science has shown us it's so dangerous that many countries have banned it. And the United States 
own scientists, the EPA's own scientists have said, there's no level of this that's safe in our food or water. And yet it's still being used and it's still in our food and water. What's it being used for? Chlorpyrifos is an insecticide. So it's you know used by farmers who need an, an insecticide. It's used a lot in growing of fruits and vegetables. So foods that you think might be particularly healthy to give your young child. Um, if they have chlorpyrifos in them, then they're not particularly healthy. Uh, strawberries. If you give a bowl of strawberries to your kids for breakfast, they probably have chlorpyrifos in them. When people eat foods with glyphosate in it, they've done studies and up to 30% is actually absorbed in the body. Uh, can you comment about that? Yeah, there's been a lot of um, looking at that and trying to understand you know, what does this mean? How long does it stay in the body? Does it persist? What does it do? Uh, and, you know, people again are trying to understand that. Uh, the companies, Monsanto has always said, you know, it, it, it moves quickly out of the body. You know, if you find it in urine, that's actually a good thing um, because it just means it's being flushed out of your body and it's, it's not hurting your body at all. There have been some recent studies that show uh, that you can, if you switch your diet from a conventional to an organic diet, you can very quickly sort of clean out your body, I guess, remove these toxins from uh, your system. So people just over a course of a few days switching diets can then show urine levels that, that don't have a high level of weed killer in it. So, um, you know, that's an area I, of a lot of study. And how about if cereals like kids eat in the morning, uh, snacks, it's in the water, the air, it's even in wine, supposedly. Yeah, no, I mean, the government research as well as academic and independent research has shown that glyphosate residues, because again, glyphosate is so widely used, it's the most widely used herbicide in the world. And that again is primarily because of the rollout of genetically engineered crops. Um, we went in, in the United States, for instance, um, we're now at about 300 million pounds a year of glyphosate used in the United States, before the introduction of GMO crops, it was around 20, 25 million uh, pounds of glyphosate used in the United States each year. So it's, you know, our US uh, Geological Survey, which is part of the Department of Interior, uh, has issued multiple reports year after year. They find glyphosate in, in the water. Uh, they've even found it in rainfall because it's so uh, widely used, it's so ubiquitous. Um, so yeah, I mean, residues in your food and residues in your drinking water is not unexpected at all. Um, and the companies don't deny it. They just say you don't have to worry about it. Um, but many scientists are concerned. And it's not only about glyphosate, but it's about this combination of chemicals that we're being exposed to. So, you know, you're, you're not only eating food that has glyphosate in it, but you're eating food that probably has some level of different insecticides and different fungicides. And you're probably also being exposed to some other environmental toxins in your home, you know, or as you drive to work and there's air pollution. And so, you know, this, it's a bigger picture than one chemical and one company. It's, it's a whole environmental sort of contaminant situation. And what are we doing? What do we want our children to, to have for their future? You see rising levels of cancer, you see rising levels of reproductive problems, infertility, um, you know, shorter gestations, lower birth weights, you're seeing um, you know, fewer pregnancies, 
Uh, obviously, you know, the, the demographic information and the census information that came out a few months ago, um, you know, rattled people around the globe because of declining uh, or slowing population, new birth slowing. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a Rachel Carson, you know, all of her, uh, I guess, warnings are, are coming home to, to roost, so to speak. I mean, we have created a toxic soup and it's no wonder uh, that this virus, this COVID virus, you know, raged uh, through our population as it did because we're, we're sick, we're vulnerable, our immune systems are compromised and it's, it's the food we're eating, it's the water we're drinking, it's the air we're breathing. And, you know, these corporate actors who make money off of all this keep telling us that it's fine and we don't need to worry about it. And uh, anybody wants to talk about it is a conspiracy theorist, but um, I've known too many people dying of cancer, you know, 42, 40%, 39.8, I think is the last, uh, the most recent data of people in the U.S. are expected to get cancer in their lifetimes. That's 40% of people expected to get cancer in their lifetimes. That's, that's not acceptable in my view. And there's been a number of studies and we're going to get into cancer in a little bit, but there's been a number of studies, Columbia Presbyterian, uh, in, in nature to show that only about 10% of cancers are really genetic. You know? yeah, yeah, genetics is obviously um, a part of this, but so the, our government, our national toxicology program, our, our highest, most prestigious scientists have written about this and have talked about this. And they have said, environmental contaminants are something we can do something about. You can't really do a lot about your genetics, but you can do something about environmental contaminants. And we know um, that so many of these cause cancer. Pesticides are part of that. And we know they cause cancer, a whole array of non-Hodgkin lymphoma and you know, brain cancers and, and prostate and breast and uterine and uh, a whole lot, as well as these neurodevelopmental diseases and problems in children and infertility. So, you know, the science is there. We just need to pay attention to it. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.